Hey, everybody. It's Mike Carlson from Podcast the Ride. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Scott Gairdner. Hello. And Jason Sheridan. Hey. And we've got a little announcement. We sure do. Yep. We're launching our new podcast on an app called Spoke to give Spoke. you three exclusive episodes. Can you believe it? Three. I can't. Yeah. Don't don't believe it, but it's true. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. Well, how does that work, though? Well, I'm going to explain. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlists of clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. So they're all grouped by topics or themes is what you're saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Thank you for figuring that out. Thank mm-hmm. you. I mean, you could try like a playlist that's uh, like about music being decoded when it's playlists with clips about unpacking and analyzing and figuring out how people make songs and what. why are they so cool, you know? They also have one uh, called Spoke's Perpetually Single Playlist, dedicated to podcasts about relationships, or lack thereof, in my case. Sure, Jason, don't put yourself down. I want to, I want to, all right. (laughs) (laughs) There's all sorts of things is what we're trying to say, and Spoke has, like, fun exclusive content from Feral, like our podcast. Uh, So you definitely don't want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now, free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Podcast the Ride's exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash podcast the ride. That's the address. Uh, Check it out. Spoke. It's time to spoke. Yeah, we're spoken. Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have, Bompus. They're premium high-performance athletic socks, and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters, for every pair of socks purchased, Bompus donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, and if you haven't listened to this show before, it is what the title implies. It uh, is a conversation with me. And someone interesting, today I speak with artist Hudson Marquez, who created Cadillac Ranch, plus, uh, you know, a gabillion other great pieces of art. And uh, it's a really fascinating conversation. We talk about um, the seamy side of New Orleans in the 50s and 60s, his touring with Led Zeppelin. A lot of great stories in there. Not surprising. Mr. Marquez is an incredible storyteller. Teller. Taylor. There's my Chicago accent slipped out there a little bit. My little, my Midwestern flat A. Welcome to that. Enjoy that. Um, please visit my website, themattdwyer.com. There's a, you can use my Amazon link and there's an other things that you could go and purchase things like beer, craft beers and stuff. And we, that's for your own pleasure. And I get a kickback of that. Uh, and the Amazon link there, you can go and buy things like tube socks, makeup, cleaners, fluid stuff, movies, things that you need personally, and it supports my show. So I'd greatly appreciate if you do that. That would help us out a lot. I need a new recorder and some mic cords. Uh, Things are getting pretty battered up here after two years of doing this show. Um, And not to uh, dwell into something morbid 
and dark. But uh, I, I had a, I had a really bad week last week. Uh, I lost a friend. She was very bright, and and beautiful, and intelligent, and caring, and um, she left this world far, far too early. And you know, all week I was um, I was very in my head, and I was like. I was worried about my career. I was worried about money. I was worried about this piece of writing that I have out there. If uh, this the, the the people in the 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 writing world who make these decisions if things turn into books or not, I was worried if they liked it. And um, when I found this tragic news out, all those things really just became in perspective, and I realized how how uh, bullshit all these things are that we concern ourselves with and that what is important and what makes us up as human beings is the people who love us and the people that we in turn love. And really not much else matters outside of that. And it's hard because I know we've all had challenges in life and these things that jolt us. I know I've had a great number of them. Um, health scares, hit by cars. Uh, you know, when and when you're flying through the air uh, at like probably 100 miles per hour, uh, and you know when you hit the ground, you don't know if, if you're going to be able to walk when you get done with it <laughs> or even be alive. It really helps you focus in on what is important in life. But then we fucking forget it. And we go, and then we get caught up in the the day-to-day bullshit of what we think is important when none of it is really important other than uh, spending time with the people you love, enjoying a glass of wine, and not stressing about money or work. Because none of these things, when we're on our deathbed, I don't think we're going to be like, Wow, I really should have stressed out about my gas bill a little bit more. Should have really, really, really worried about my cable bill. I wish I could do it all over again just so I could worry about my goddamn student loans. Um, so I'm just saying, perhaps in a slightly rambly, rambly, bambly way, that uh, just remember to take a moment every day and just try to put the shit in perspective and go, all right, these are people I love. These are the things I love to do. I have to, it's life. Sometimes we have to do some garbage, but it doesn't matter. And enjoy our lives because it's all over too fucking quick. And I really hope, I hope personally I can keep remembering this and live life in a non-stressed out dumb way. And that is all. Uh, please visit my website, themattdwyer.com. Let's get on to the conversation here with Hudson Marquez. It's a goddamn good one. You're saying people view artists as scum? see it even with you'd expect like um, Mitch McConnell or somebody like that to go artist well you've never done anything 
you are worthless scum, you know? I mean, they, what, do you, what do you do? Did you go to school? You know, you aren't productive. Yeah, yeah. Besides the fact that <laughs> you're an artist, you must be some kind of Tommy. But other than that, even, you know, your liberal do-good sort are like, you're art scum. You guys most probably don't. I mean, really. Why do you think people view artists so as such scum? Um, I think always. It's cultural scum, except <laughs> for when the powers that be, like the, the Medicis and the Pope and shit, had these artists. Nobody was going to go, hey, that guy's a scumbag and a homo. Nobody's going <laughs> to say that. You know? And then artists just get completely <coughs> disrespected. But I, you know what? I don't really know... I think it's a, a something that a lot of people, for, and not just my contemporary, but art historically, have wanted to become artists because they were such scum. You know, that, that, that was a bad thing to do. It was a naughty thing to do. If you had any talent, you could go, well, you know, I could be a lawyer, but you know what? It's going to be a lot more fun being an artist. Because <laughs> you, you get to drink all night. And, but you get to uh, drink all night and chase pussy, and you also get to have naked girls in a room with you. You paint them. Hopefully, some relationship will start. <laughs> I just, I, it's funny. I just told somebody uh, the other day, uh, some old friend of mine said, "Well, said some, sent me a picture of a, uh, a kind of a well-known book among artists, a paperback smut book. Not very smutty, actually. I had a copy of it, but the cover is great. It's a painting of a guy painting a naked woman, and it was I forget the title, but it's like." Artists. <laughs> He's going to have his way with, oh, what body things happen in the studio. You know, it's like funny. And she'd send it to me, and I, I said to her, I, I said, yeah, uh, that's why uh, we all get into art. Pussy. <laughs> Pretty simple. Is that like something you realized when you were very young? Like, oh, if I, if I start doing this, this is going to attract the ladies? Yeah. 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 Or for me, it would be, who takes art lessons or goes to an art school? Chicks! You're the only guy there. And I was, which was fun. But then it was suddenly, I was in art school, and it was like, guys has teachers that were really nice and really good. But, you know, the hip one just said, you know, just get out of school. Just quit school. Get out of here. Go live someplace. Then you'll be a good painter. He said, you know, he said, I'm just here. And this was a guy who was wonderfully changeling. His name was Al Carney. He was from Boston. His father had been a, was a big surgeon there. Of course, you know, Al's an artist. And he teaches at a girls' school, Newcomb College. Sophie Wright Newcomb College for Young White Christian Women, which is the most heavily endowed college in the United States <laughs> by, from this woman, Sophie Wright Newcomb. Who, uh, and it's part of Tulane. Tulane said, we love, we love Sophie Wright Newcomb College. And they wanted their endowment. So they finally got it, and they got the school. But at the time, it was the girls' division of Tulane in New Orleans. I'm there at art school, and it really was. It was like really rich girls from Hockaday. That's a girls' school in Dallas. And rich girls from Greenville, Mississippi. And um, they were all gorgeous, too. I mean, it was fun. It was fun, but, you know. <laughs> Cal told me, basically, you know, you can... Get pussy wherever you go. You don't have to be here with these. I said, you teach here. He goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> Is that common? Because, I mean, I, a lot of artists I talk to, they, they're, they're training. They were just like, I was just biding time to make connections and 
have free materials, but most people feel like they didn't learn a lot from art school in general anyway. No, no, you know, art, art schools are uh, anything, I think, past high school, unless you want to be an engineer, and this is all fact-based shit, right, physics and all that crap, you, you know, you, you got to learn that somehow, but something as amorphous as art, you know, there are techniques they can teach people but they can't give people ideas. Like if you look at a lot of the, uh, you know, they, that's what happens to people who get frustrated in art school is, they, and they realize, you know. Uh, to, but today, uh, it, it's real awful. They want to go to art school, it's a credential they need to be to get into a gallery to be showing in New York when they're 22 years old. It's like, you know, they've come out of art school to do that. But when I was in school, and this is like uh, mid six, yeah, when I first started, when I when I quit school, uh, and and was in school, um, that was uh, nineteen sixty four, and I was just you know it was like I want to be a beatnik too. Hey, go on, be a beatnik artist, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and he was right, you know. I didn't need art school; they couldn't give you an idea, and I see that all the time here in this city, in art galleries, where I see kids, well, no, they don't have to be kids, but most of the art kids, technical chops are amazing. I mean, they can do amazing stuff, and uh, which is, and that's the bourgeois hook. It's always like, oh, that, 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 that thing that that Picasso guy drew, it can't be no good because look at this over here, it looks just like a dog. <laughs> yeah, so that does look like a dog, but there's more than one kind of dog. Anyway, that's a, don't want to go down that road ever with anybody. But, but is is the art world become more of that, where it's like less heart and more just like uh, I, well, sell I, this I, you know what? I try, I'm not part of the art world really. I I mean, I show at the same gallery, La Luz de Jesus, that I do for 30 years, and um, I uh, paint every day, and I have a show once a year. And I sell some stuff. Matter of fact, guy's going to come over and pick this up today. Uh, maybe while we're here. But anyway, um, uh, I was going to say that today you look around and you see uh, uh, I mean, amazing stuff. But it's all the same crap. Big eyes, teardrops. It's, it's just like great technique, no fucking ideas. I mean, no idea at all other than to make a skull look just like a skull with a bird on it and some teardrops and some rain. <laughs> I mean, they've been doing this. You know, it's like, oh, boy. But when I was a kid, I wanted to be, become an artist. I grew up in New Orleans, and there's a huge, like, section of the city that was supposed to be full of beatniks and artists called the French Quarter. And there were. There were many beatniks and, and, and artists there. And there was a Jackson, there's a place called Jackson Square. Uh, people, they, they did portraits there. And uh, as I became a teenager, I realized that, yeah, there actually was a kind of a wild lifestyle. In the French Quarter, anything goes anyway. That's why your parents told you never to go in a public bathroom in the French Quarter. And I didn't know what they meant. I found out <laughs> why you don't go into a bathroom in the French Quarter. Is that it, it, every stall, public every public restroom in the French Quarter then had glory holes in the walls, and they were patrolled by these perverts, 
And as you got to the bathroom, people started coming around, grown men. You went, oh, you, you pee in the street rather than deal with that. But uh, anyway, that's that. That's what part of the French Quarter was like. It was, it was a, a place that was a little bit dangerous. It's still dangerous, very dangerous today, but for different reasons. But it was kind of weird and dangerous, and there were a lot of beatniks. There were people who, like you know, wore berets and actually smoked that, and then. The, and the gay, uh, the French Quarter is always a total haven for gay people. And New Orleans being a port, they're like, hello, sailor. Fleets in <laughs> all the time. So there's always some sexual activity going on 24 hours a day that you can just feel. The heterosexual and homosexual, but I mean, you know, oh my God. And these homosexuals are not good taste homosexuals. These were guys who wore undershirts, black khaki pants, brown shoes, and carried a patent leather handbag. And, <laughs> and, and they were, you know, oh, yeah. The French, it was very attractive. I mean, I was attracted to black music that we weren't supposed to see and this stuff we weren't supposed to see. And, was uh, it very segregated back then, the New Orleans? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they passed the law in the Brown versus the Board of Education, civil rights, thing, declaring integration, uh, I mean, the law of the land and segregation illegal. There wasn't a black person that went to school in the state of Louisiana until 1965. That's 11 years they That's kept incredible. black people out. And um, it was easy because black people didn't want to. They want to go through that shit mm -hmm. that they saw. Ha anyway, that's a whole nother world. But yeah, it was really segregated, very segregated. Although the French Quarter had black people who were not, they wouldn't be accepted on the other side of Canal Street for anything except loading pallets and washing dishes. But in the French Quarter. Some of them were poets and writers and artists and things. They they were like it was a special little place, and where anything went, you know, as long as you kept your lips zipped. It got to be, and there's a whole Bourbon Street side of New Orleans, which New Orleans is. I mean, really, for having a place that's very sophisticated in so many ways to be famous for. Tits and ass, <laughs> and, and, you know, and utter drunkenness, throw up all the time. Drunkenness was like really ironic. But uh, now it's like part of that is very touristy. But back then it wasn't. None of that was. Bourbon Street was touristy. Oh, that, was it? That, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was the is tourist. That... That's the draw. Bourbon Street, the French Quarter. There were a f several places in the French Quarter that were tourist attractions, but those tourists. Um, well, New Orleans had a thriving port. It was the second biggest port in the country, New York, New Orleans. They had, they, were, they had coffee importation, they had coffee roasters, they had breweries. There were a lot of things going on. New Orleans made stuff, too. And um, the people came to the, down the river and settled in New Orleans and became entrepreneurs and made things. Yeah. They had factories and blah, blah, blah. They actually had a frog canning factory. Really? Yeah, frog canning. <clears throat> Never saw it, but there are pictures of it and there, you know, it's where you could send off from the back of a magazine for giant frogs. They grow frogs, too. Then sell them back to us at the cannery. 
<laughs> but yeah, there actually were businesses there. Um, uh, and Bourbon Street was the yeah. uh, tourist draw. But the city didn't pay attention to tourism. It wasn't a business. Now it's the only business there is there is tourism. There's nothing else. I mean, nobody, they don't make any money. They don't make anything there, you know? A lot of lawyers, a lot of oil and gas guys up in towers. But, I mean, I mean they, they don't make anything. Does it bother you? Because, like, I was there, and I was at uh, I, Mimi's. Do you know the club Mimi's? I don't know if it's... In the quarter? No, it's in the... Fuck, I can't think of what neighborhood it's in. But they had to stop playing music at midnight. And that's, like, a, I guess a new, fairly new law. Because like, it used to be they could play till. Oh, 24 hours a day. Oh, you were there recently. I was there. Oh, you I'm, must have... You know what it is? You were back in town. You were on Frenchman Street and kind of a hipster area? Yes, I was. Okay, yeah. That... Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know where to start with that crap. The fucking city... Well, wait a minute. I'll back up just a little because it'll lead directly okay. to this. It's about New Orleans. The politics and whatnot. Bourbon Street was... Uh, a huge thriving business. It's all owned by some Italian fellas. Live out in Jefferson Parish. Their name was Marcella. And Carlos Marcella. And he owned all the antique stores, all the strip clubs, all everything. And you never saw a hooker when I was growing up in New Orleans. And I still, you still don't. You see hookers on the street. Every other city is going, oh, they got to go there for it. They would hook it. Not in New Orleans, which the mob didn't like that because they wanted people to come to tourist area. And if you had hookers on every corner, it just wasn't going to work. It the hookers were all in the club strip clubs they owned, and the dancers, other than the Blaze Star and Linda Bridgette, uh, Tempest Storm, these people who were like big time, they were the feature dancers. The other dancers would get down off the stage, and they put a like a nightgown around them, a see-through thing, and come down and sit at the bar next to a guy that had been just looking at him. She was just dancing right in front of him on the bar. Get down and uh, uh, hustle drinks, which were seven up and something. They gave him little balls of champagne, seven up and something that they made out the back and cost the guy 35 bucks. And this was like, it was in the 50s. That's, and they just took the guy for everything he had. Plus, he'd nuzzle his dick once in a while with a hand. <laughs> and, and in the back of the clubs, the light just totally just dropped off. And they had a seating, you know, like chairs, tables and chairs, and then they had some booths, they had another level of booths. Well, those back booths, whoosh, the lighting just stopped right there. It was dark. And you could get a blowjob, you could get a hand job, you could do anything you wanted back there. It was like an open kind of whorehouse in a lot of ways. And when the men would complain that they just spent $300 at the bar on this woman, and, hey, she just walked away. What the fuck is this? You're the bouncers <laughs> would come in, and guys would go, well, you got a problem? Yeah. They would take him to the vestibule of the club where they took him in, beat the living shit out of him, take his wallet and everything else and throw him out in the street. Now, this is a worker daddy from Ohio who's in town for the uh, Rubbermaid uh, uh, convention. He doesn't have a wallet. He doesn't have anything on him, and he's, his, his nose is broken. Now, where is he going to go? If he gets a cop, the cop goes, oh, man, what's the matter with you? No ID. They take him to jail. 
because they're all part of the same scheme. They took them to jail, so they would just get the poo beat out of them. They go to jail. They never <laughs> filed a complaint. Yeah, I gave us. That's right, honey. I gave a stripper three hundred bucks. Then a guy hit me, and the next thing you know, it's like, nah. So they had a whole racket worked out there that we all understood completely. We'd see people out there. Plus, the other great thing to see back those days, the fifties and sixties, on Bourbon Street was um, the uh, after three or four in the morning, you could. And when I lived in the quarter, it was like this. Too, <laughs> all the corners off of Bourbon Street and just in the streets around would have a one guy at each corner, one single guy at each corner, waiting for his date, who told him that she would meet him at this corner at that side of the street, and they were waiting. They had already been fleeced. And the girl also told another guy she'd meet him on this corner and that corner. They have four corners, so they got four dates. And every corner had four guys on it looking for women. That's and hilarious. Yeah, you know, so there were never hookers on the street. And they would have fleeced these guys. The other thing that they did that was nastier that we knew all about, and a matter of fact, it came to some national attention here in West Hollywood with some elections in the 70s, 80s, was a, a, was a woman who participated in this scheme, was running for election in West Hollywood, and it came out. And everybody was going, oh, that's so terrible. And I'm going, oh, yeah, well, that's what they do. They, they say, yeah, they're going to meet, meet me at this corner. And they, get, they think the guy's got a lot of money, a lot of credit cards. She gets her car and picks him up at his hotel. Says she's going to a place where she can fuck a couple of other girls, too. And it will only cost him, you know, blah, 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 but bring some cash. So he's got all the cash he brought with him. This is before the days of ATM. There were people with a lot of cash. And her boyfriend would be in the trunk. And they'd go to that someplace, semi-rural, and he'd go, what's going on? She goes, hold on, I think there's something wrong with my car. And she'd get out let the guy out of the trunk. And he would get out and just rob and beat the shit out of the guy and leave him there. And... Sometimes people, sometimes they died. I mean, these guys were just, you know, lunkheads. You know, blah, blah. And they were just, the guy's out there in the middle of nowhere with a broken, you know, it's the same thing. And he has nothing. They've taken him for everything he has now. That went on. That was the Bourbon Street engine. That's what drove everything was this stuff. On the surface, you had this incredible amount of ample flesh. And it, it wasn't like that in the rest of this country. They didn't have titty bars in, in, in little places in Ohio. They didn't have it. It was against, blah, blah, you know, blah. So people would come for miles around and drive down Bourbon Street. And uh, there would be a barker who would try to get people in the club. And when you drive down Bourbon Street, and these people are tourists. Or, actually, a lot of people who would come to visit, for, especially after the war. I remember my dad had... A lot of uh, uh, officers that he'd been officers with in, in Burma come to the, uh, you know, uh, come to the house and my dad would show them Bourbon Street. Yeah, you can come to. They had a bunch of drinks. And they would show these tourists Bourbon Street by driving. Hey, Tipitina. Oh, your cat. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kitty cat. So um, the, I mean, it was pretty fascinating because you drive down and the guys would open the, the traffic would slow down. People were looking out. The street's very, very narrow. 
I mean, it was built in, you know, by the Spanish in a million years ago. So they look out there, and the guy opens the door so you can see the bar, and you can see a woman dancing half naked on stage. And that would, you know, then he'd close the door and say, hey, you want to see the rest? And It know. must have blown people's minds. Oh, yeah. It was like, <laughs> unbelievable. It was Bourbon Street. Oh, my God. Plus, you could drink 24 hours a day. And that's what my city was known for. <laughs> Expensive pussy, hoodlums, and titties. Well, and it, uh, it's still, uh, I mean, it, there's a semblance of that today, too, of course. Um, now there's 100 titty bars. And what they want is like 18-year-old kids who never had been able to drink before in their fucking lives. They don't check IDs. I think they you changed know, I noticed it. that when I was there, like, there was kids who looked, I was like, these kids are 16. If yeah. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We, we started to drink when we were there. We started to drink when we were, we could go to bar rooms when we were 14. Not every bar room, but there were bar rooms we could go to. And the drunks would just, look at them kids drinking there, you. <laughs> Ain't that cute? <laughs> Buy them a beer. Get them a beer, Mr. Lou. And you used to sneak out and see, because you posted, I can't remember who it was, but you posted something the other day. It's like, this is the reason I would sneak out of my yeah, house. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, there was a place called um, uh, the Dew Drop Inn that was... Uh, kind of downtown, well, hard to explain, midtown New Orleans, uh, just off St. Charles Avenue, off Jackson and St. Charles, a place you drove not far from it if you drove up and down St. Charles Avenue, far from where this place was. New Orleans neighborhoods are really mixed because they are big white houses and where white folks lived and the servants lived around them. So you're driving down, there's this great nice house, and the next thing you know, holy Jesus, this crack horse running around and guys pointing guns with rags on their head. Holy shit. Well, and the houses look great, too. I mean, they're beautiful. You're going, gee, look at this. Because their houses are 150 years old and beautiful, but, you know, just don't get too far off the path. <laughs> well, off that path was a place called the Dew Drop Inn. And it was owned by a, a, a family named Pania, P-A-N-I-A. And Frank Pania was a barber. And he had a barber shop on this street. Can't think of the name of the street. It's bl I'm blanking, but it was on the. But anyway, it was he had a barber shop, and he was a good hair cutter, and he was a nice guy, and people knew. You know, he opened up a, he opened up a, a breakfast kind of a breakfast place, and then he realized that all the and black performers would come there late at night, to eat, but there was no place, for um, Ray Charles in the fifties. Uh, the early 60s, there was no place for anybody, for James Brown, for Little Richard. There was no place for them to stay. There were no black, I mean, you know, they, didn't, they couldn't stay. He opened up a hotel. And the black, and they, he opened up a big lounge inside. It was called the Dewdrop Inn. And every, it was on the Chitlin circuit. And it was every black performer, I mean, and they were young. When I saw Richard, little Richard there, I mean, Richard was young, you know. This would be 60, let's see, 1960, 61. I mean, they were young. And Bobby Blueland was like a kid, it looked like. Jesus. I mean, all these, we saw everybody there was to see. Everybody. And we saw Sam and Dave. We saw people who became soul stars. We saw local people who are just blew, blow your mind, but you'd never really know who they were now. But, uh... It was a black club. We got in. We were the only white kids in there.
but we loved the music and we went there. We knew where the people, because we read the black newspaper. It's called Louisiana Weekly. And it would have ads in there for this play. We'd go, gotta go there. Because I want to see. And I saw James Brown at the Municipal Auditorium in New Orleans in a huge, you know, well, three, four thousand people. And uh, James Brown Review, when I was, I was like, yes, this, we knew this couldn't be a big place. And we kind of cruised by it a few times. And we went, this is the place where they say, the advertisements say that, you know, Spencer Wiggins is coming in. Blah. I mean, you know, oh, man. So <laughs> we we went to, we went and we were 13 and we stole my friend's car, Elliot and I, we drove to it. Wasn't far. No, it was a small scale. We drove there and we went, Mr. Frank said, what are you doing? Well, we want to come in and we want to come in and see Bobby Marchand and Eddie Buck. And he said, "How do you know they're in here?" Well, he's in the Louisiana Weekly. He's like, "Well, uh, you know, uh, oh, where are you boys from uptown?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said uh, he's a very light-skinned guy, by the way, very kind of high yellow guy. Frank, his whole family, very light-skinned, and his, his family works. His 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 wife did the cash register, and the kids were bartenders and waiters and whatnot. And they tried to make it, you know, real uptown, but, you know. He said, y'all from uptown, huh? Yeah, yes, I'm. He said, where do you live? I said, well, I live in Hmm, what's your name? He told me. I said, you know, he said, I, I think you might know a friend of my dad's, <laughs> a guy named Frank Lasassier, very, 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 very high yellow black contractor who was a, very nice man, he's a generous guy, he's a friend of my dad's. And he went, you know Frank? I said, oh yeah, Uncle Frank, he's my dad's friend. Well, Pania kind of went, and he looked at my other friend and said, who's your dad? He goes, he's a, uh, he's a Toy Brothers lawyer, yellow cab. Y'all come in, y'all come in, I ain't gonna make any trouble. They knew we weren't making trouble. He, and he also was big on, on integration. He had he'd been to jail, Frank had been to jail a couple of times for race mixing by having white people in his club. But we were little, so. And we were welcome there for two years. He told us we couldn't drink and we couldn't get any pussy. <laughs> and, he, and he said, be quiet. You sit over here. Now everybody will know who you are. It's okay. Because he saw what we were after. We were like, we weren't chasing pussy and trying to get drunk. We were like, oh, look at this. Well, that lasted for two years. And then we were 15 and we weren't so cute anymore. Now, <laughs> maybe we were looking at the waitresses a little too close. I mean, you know, plus there were always women in there who were drunk, who'd come and just pull up their dresses and rub their pussy on you, you know, like that. Oh, come on, you little white motherfucker. So, you know, we were like, no, that's okay. Oh, you're, you're blocking my view, man. I can't see them up there, you know, so, yeah. And uh, uh, I, did a, I did a painting uh, called Incident at the Dew Drop Inn. It's true. That Mr. Frank Randolph Scott, an actor, kind of a, you know, yeah, a lot of westerns, kind of a smooth-looking fucker. He was shooting a movie in New Orleans in 1953 or something like that. And he wanted to go see music. So uh, he said he, you know, he, that he was a fan of the Central Avenue and, Los Angeles, a jazz, black music, took him to the Dewdrop Inn. So Randolph Scott's there drinking up a storm, having a great time, and somebody dropped a dime on Frank saying there was white people in the place, and the cops 
showed up and arrested Frank and Randolph Scott for race mixing inside the club. That's such an absurd concept these days. <laughs> race mixing. Can't do that. That's like, that's like being out of order. I mean, you can't do that. Race mixing. Did you ever think about going into music with, I mean, being in New Orleans? I had absolutely no musical talent. None. <laughs> you know, in, in New Orleans public schools, they give, when we were in the second grade, they started giving the instruments. I mean, that's why a lot of people who would have never picked up a drumstick, you know, became uh, drummers or guitar players, horn players a lot. Lots of horn players, a lot of piano players. Because at the school, there would be a piano. And every bar room in town had a piano. And that's from the tradition of the whorehouses all had pianos in the front room. That's what Jelly Roll Morton did, was entertain the customers while they waited to, you know, to go upstairs. And so New Orleans is a piano town for that reason alone. God, I mean, the country would not have fucking anything culturally almost if it wasn't for New Orleans. I mean, it's well, I, mean, I, I look at it that way. I mean, you know, but yeah, yeah, I think so. I agree. Uh, so much came out of New Orleans. I mean, so the music is... Certainly an influence on a million different things. Anyway, I, I, but, I, but I'm prejudiced, so I don't know if I can say that. But great, Ernie Cato was a kind of a rascally R&B singer. That's a good guy who had a bunch of hits. I guess the one that you must probably know the best, or anybody would know, is called Mother-in-Law. Mother-in-Law. You know, that was that, like the, la the number one song to come out of New Orleans until recently. I forget what the rapper was, but like... Oh, yeah, it was Lil Wayne. Yeah, Lil Wayne. Lil Wayne, Ludacris, Lil Wayne, yeah. Lil Wayne, yeah, he rapped. There's a, now there's a, black, there's a black economy in society that can go to shows. They don't have any place to go. Do drop in. And some clubs here and there and some stuff on the QT across the lake, Pontchartrain from New Orleans, you know, like that. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I, we, we were so lucky to see, uh, see a public school system that encouraged people to play music. And you didn't get the instrument, you'd rent from Campo Music on Dryad Street. And Campo it was a rental house, and you could rent a trumpet, a cornet, to see it. And you wouldn't have to keep for 15 bucks. You could have it for, like, the school year. And if it didn't work out, you couldn't do it, you could trade that back in on another instrument. So the teachers would go, no, I don't think you should be able to do No, <laughs> I think maybe this might be better. So you would trade in until they found something, if you had any talent at all, that you could do, that you took to right away. And it also teaches tradition, which I don't think is something else the rest of our country doesn't. Yeah. I mean, there's because it's like you see kids playing jazz music and, yeah. and having knowing the history of jazz, which m most fucking five-year-olds can't do that. You, but you uh, watch that... There was a show that was oh, it was good and bad, but Tremé. The show, Tremé? Yeah. Well, at Tremé, you know, they showed uh, that's the best. The characters in that show were fantastic. You know, the act, the actors too. You know, Wendell Pierce who played the uh, trombone player, but wound up teaching high school music. That happened. I mean, that's part of that tradition. It goes on today, and the big black schools, um, uh, Saint Augustine, has the Saint Augie's uh, March in One Hundred. And, I mean, there's a, there are 100 people playing. 100 people in that marching band. And they, that's, and half of New Orleans music comes from the marching band tradition. When I was a kid, I remember the schools practiced on the streets marching after school. And you could just hear 
that second line, trombones, and the whole thing. You could just hear it. Then you'd hear another one over here. And this wasn't any kind of romantic, oh, I'm lit. No, this was just like, oh, yeah, better. And when we, when I was like 15, we, we drive when we were 15, by the way. It's licensed. Such a good age. So <laughs> drink and drive. We started drinking and driving early. So uh, we're going, oh, God, I'm the fucking band. Ah, shit. And we turn and go the other way. Well, those marching bands are fucking amazing. They go around the world and they do this. But the St. Augustine Band is the one. And they're the ones that are paid the most. Mardi Gras parades, they march every day. These guys, I mean, it's rough. But that marching band tradition and the drums are all what New Orleans jazz, jazz and street music. And uh, they do teach these kids that. And their parents do too. I mean, they don't, they don't give them the little Wayne record and say, hey, you, want, you like codeine and cough syrup? Codeine and, uh, you like <laughs> codeine and grape juice? Yeah, the little Wayne record. It doesn't start off like that. They might get there, but it doesn't start off like that. We are going to get back to the conversation here in a moment. But before we do, I want to offer you the opportunity to advertise on Conversations with Matt Dwyer. For $100, you get one episode where you can advertise whatever you want, your website, your blog, your business, your book, and it will be heard by thousands and thousands of people throughout the world. $200 will get you three episodes. The good thing is that once these episodes are up and running, they'll never come down. So this ad will exist for years and years and years. It is a really great bargain and a great way to advertise. Contact me through my contact page on themattdwyer.com and we could further email um, details. Also, feel free to use my Amazon page there to purchase things you need in the world like toilet paper and paper towels and I get a kickback of that money. Now back to the conversation. Thank you. Why is the rest of this country, I mean, there's pockets of places that are sure. a little bit more traditional, but it's like, why is New Orleans so steeped in tradition? And the, it's like, I feel like we, well, I don't know, I grew up it's, in L.A. It's still, well, you know, my take is, my take is that my family's been there since 1742. Do you need to grab that? No, I don't know. I have a phone, but that's not me. I don't know. I don't oh, have right. to grab it. No, no, no. Plus, probably a reminder telling me that you're going to be here. <laughs> so anyway, um, no, my family came in 1742. No one ever leaves. This, it's changing a whole lot. I mean, it's, which of course is deep. People are now afraid that, and they've always been afraid. Oh my God, the culture is going to go. It's amazing. It's still stuff's still there, you know. It's changed, but it's still there. People don't leave. Why would you ever leave? You know, you had like, I wanted to leave pretty badly. You know, when I was fifteen, I, I went with my parents to New York to do some shopping. And they took me with them, and I was standing outside the Plaza Hotel, and I saw a black guy in a Corvette. And I went, what the fuck? They let niggers drive Corvettes here? Hmm, you can't do them black, you couldn't drive a Corvette in New Orleans. I mean, it's like, somebody would just burn your car down for being uppity. I mean, really. So I was like, yeah, this is the place to be. Yeah, New York City, just like I thought it would be. Look, look, just like this. Look at this shit going on here. I, I mean, I was like stunned. 
that was the first time that I thought, because I thought the whole world was like New Orleans, and I travel. But people in New Orleans don't travel. It's amazing. I mean, the wealthiest people in the world who could go anywhere and do anything. I mean, my God, to go to Italy and, you know, stay at the Chelsea for three weeks and eat your way through. I mean, no, no interest at all. You think you go to Ireland and go, I mean, just stay at one of those, uh, we, we've stayed at one of them, one of those huge, you know, oh, I can't think of any, you know, those huge Irish homes, robber baron homes that have been turned into like $2,200 a day closet space rents for, you know, <laughs> with fishing and gillies and shutting guys, you know, that crap. They could go do all that all around the world. Go to Paris and go to the, you know, stay in the fucking Ritz. No. They don't want to wait in lines. That's what Mormon's father told me. I don't like waiting in lines. He had an idea that Europe was full of Americans waiting in lines, getting in places. Maybe somebody told him that. But that was the best reason I ever heard for not traveling. I don't like lines. Oh, God. <laughs> no, these people never want to go in. I mean, they've been to Mississippi. They've been to Florida. They may have been to Houston. And they may have been in Arkansas, maybe. But they don't go anywhere. It's like... And also, they have a family waiter and a restaurant that they've gone to for a hundred families, gone to for a hundred years. And you have a waiter. Oh, why? You know, my, my best friend, who shared my escapades at the Do Drop In and a lot more, uh, who is, he's unfortunately passed on, but his name was Elliot Snellings. And Elliot, um, he never left, he didn't leave. I'm the only one of this whole crowd of people that ever left. People don't leave. They love it there. Were you glad they you stagnate. left? They stagnate. Oh, boy. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. And as soon as they, as soon as somebody, because I, I, I took all, I didn't take it for granted, all that music and all the food and all the culture, the culture of New Orleans. I didn't, I never took it for granted. I knew that to keep it, you had to work at it and you had to seek it out and so on. So it wasn't just something that happened. But I also knew I couldn't live there. I mean, I, I, it wasn't the roaches. wasn't the humidity. Although I'm telling you, every time I leave something out overnight, like uh, some cheese, I'm still, I'm 66 years old and I'm 65, excuse me. Now I'm 60, I don't know how old I am. When, <laughs> when, um, uh, when I leave food out, I'm going... It's so nice not to have to worry about the roaches. Because no matter where you live in New Orleans, no matter where, it doesn't make any difference if you're in the poorest, poorest slum or you're in, like, uh, the best hotel or the best restaurant in the town or the biggest mansion in the Garden District. You got roaches, baby. You got roaches. And you can't leave anything out. You're fucking roaches. I was, I'm more afraid of roaches than I am of, like, pit bulls and stuff. I mean, really. I don't like them. But, you know... <laughs> But I, that wasn't what uh, I, I left because uh, there was no place to go. I mean, I wanted to make art, and no, you nobody wanted to buy art in New Orleans. They didn't know dick about art. There was one contemporary art gallery. The other art was people painting portraits in Jackson Square. I, I would have been glad to do that. Had I the so painting portraits is a very special skill, a very like the talent's not really ladled out. Just because you can do one thing, then it's a very specialized thing. And I, I didn't have that, you know. 
Where did you end up going after New Orleans? Um, well, first place I went was San Francisco, and then I and I, then I drove down to L.A. and stayed here for a while and made some friends. And I had some friends here, and I went back to I went back and forth between San Francisco and L.A. What, what, what year was were you in San Francisco? Ah, uh, sixty. 68, 69 back here in L.A. for 70, and then 71 back to San Francisco. A few years in each place, sometimes a few days. But I, <laughs> but I always kept, I kept an apartment in New Orleans. So the time I traveled, and I traveled with rock and roll bands <clears throat> as a road manager or an equipment you guy. You road managed Led Zeppelin, didn't you? Hmm? Was it? No, I, actually the Led Zeppelin thing was funny because the manager of Led Zeppelin, who, a guy named Grant, who was a, a giant uh, uh, thug. He's a wrestler. He'd been, he's a giant guy with mutton chops that would kill you. And he was a gangster, and uh, he wound up only managing a rock band, and this was a band. And he had little thugs that uh, uh, pissed people off when they went outside of England. So when they came here and they did their first tour, that was a, some of it was a disaster. And then I would work for a band in San Francisco. He knew the manager. He said, I've got to have somebody who's got to front the band with this shit guy. Cause, and they said, he can. He can do that. He understands the music, and he can be nice to people. He's polite, so on and so on. So I, I worked for Peter Grant and, and the band as a guy who said, no, no, don't hit that little kid. I know, you know, I know he's got a $100 suit on, and, and he called fucking Hawk. Now he's saying, fucking way he's high, you know. Um, they all sound like Bob Hoskins, you know, and they're about <laughs> this tall, and they're mean. And it's like, no, 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 no. And then the union, I knew how to deal with the union, and it kept Peter Grant from having to pay the union off and to muscle, and he was so antagonistic. And so were the guys around them. And it, and it allowed the, the band to be not antagonistic, you know. They had everything around them kicking ass for them. And I was just the guy who went, hey, how you doing? You know, we're gonna load out tonight. You know, you think maybe, you know, you know. And by by the way, here's some, you know, here's something. Buy the guy some beer. Here's three hundred dollars. Oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. Do you think Grant being such a thug was part of? I mean, not that Led Zeppelin was a terrible band, but I mean, like him being such a thug helped them gain such success as a manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where Grant came from and where Sharon Osbourne's father came from. Sharon Osborne's father was, um, God, I cannot think of the maiden name. Uh, her father was one, too. Total thug. Beat people up. It was a man, a talent manager. You know, what they did was, it was thug stuff. There were X amount of music halls in England, and they had people play music halls. And the pop came. It was pop music, it was English folk, whatever it was. It wasn't English folk music, it was Stanley Holloway and I'm in a I'm It was musical tradition. Well, they took over the, you know, we have the, uh, uh, you know, the deluxe chain of these, and then we have the Sanger chain, and they ruled with an iron hand. You didn't get to pay, play there unless you, but you know, they owned the music's the performing thing. And then along come these white kids with long hair who are playing. And they didn't fit into those, go to those music halls. They were playing other places, too. I mean, this is simplified. But anyway, same guys who 
you ever see the Cray Brothers, the movie? Yeah, the, yeah. They, they were the musical version of the Cray Brothers, Osmond's dad and Peter Grant. And they they, they said uh, they muscled away right into the rock and roll scene. Hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to help you out. I'm going to get you. And it was like, it's it, when you're a kid, you can imagine this guy. You know, they were kids. I mean, uh, you know, Bobby Plant was, these guys, they were kids. They were older than me, but they were still kids. Well, you can imagine that just like, you mean what? You can get us on an airplane to go to France to play? Oh, sure. Because these guys knew how to put on a show, and they did. So that's how they got involved. That's how Peter Grant became a rock manager, you know, guy. He didn't need another band other than Led Zeppelin, you know. Osborne's dad needed a lot of bands. But anyway, that, that that's how they got, the thugs got in there. They came over here, and the thug really didn't match. So I was kind of the in-between. It was fun, you know. It was fun. Uh, after I the show, <laughs> after the show, I never saw dope. Really? No. <laughs> I never saw dope. Never saw any pussy. And <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it, it was, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what there was. The first time I saw it, first time I saw it, the next time I saw it was in West Hollywood in the 70s. Huge salad bowls full of rubbers. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next place I saw that was at Rage on Santa Monica Boulevard, a gay disco. Huge salad bowls full of rubbers. So, you know, and that was for AIDS and prevent, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah for, yeah. And this was so, well, these, one of these women that were around the bands were total skanks. I mean, I, I mean, I, mean I, I think a lot of those women were very smart, had really great taste, were really beautiful. And this is what they wanted to do. This was to be a groovy. Uh, then, and they, uh, it was fine. But then there were other w women who were just psychotic, disease-ridden, ugly, smelly, whatever. I mean, you know, it was a strange thing. It was strange. I, I, I never, uh, I, I thought, thought I saw some of the guys in the band get mean. And they weren't mean people, but they got mean. And it was kind of like, no. Nah. Was it just like too much success? Yeah, I just bored them. Bored. I think I'll be mean. I can get away with it. Look at this. So anyway, but I mean that was that was fun. But I kept an apartment in New Orleans, and I would always go back to New Orleans because there's always something going on. It's very hard to leave New Orleans too, because you say you pick a date and you say, "Oh, I'm going to leave on Monday. I'm going to go." Well, on Sunday, it's a Saturday. You tell somebody, you say, "Hey, when are you leaving?" I said, on "Monday." Oh man, you can't leave on Monday. You know what's happening Monday night? Oh, no, you can't do that. Or, hey, you can't. Tuesday. Tuesday. Bottle. You know. Uh. <laughs> and, and people wind up living there. You know, every Mardi Gras. People after Mardi Gras, stay. there's a huge crowd of people who never leave. And they all live in New Orleans. That's where a lot of people come to New it's Orleans. It's a hard town to leave. Yeah. And you had a good time, huh? I did. And I'd never... I, I'd, I've been wanting to go my entire life, and I that was the first time I was there, and it was not, it was, you know, we were there for a night, and I was just like... One uh, night? One night. Oh, man. We did a show at Tulane, and then uh, yeah. we left early the next morning, and I was like, I'm, I have, like, a couple friends there, and I was just like, show me what you can. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to sleep. <laughs> no, I'm not going to sleep. No, no. 
No, no, no. God, when, you know, Speed and Coke were big, they're still, they still are. But uh, New Orleans was just uh, funny. When I was a teenager, the choice of drug in that city was was, um, was heroin, and black people took dope. And uh, that, that port, <laughs> uh, and that port, uh, and uh, I used to see guys in the quarter, used to see guys exchanging suitcases. There was nobody, there was no, you know, Let's just change the cases. They had two cops with them to make sure that no, nothing would happen. And um, two guys, they would just exchange suitcases. One cop went with one guy, one cop went with the other guy, and he went, which one's got dope, which one's got money? Whatever, I mean, this is blatant. And then when uh, marijuana became available to the Utes, whew, the city would change LSD. God, let's take LSD and walk down Bourbon Street. That was like, that was the macho. I mean, that was a. Can you handle your drugs? Can you take walk Bourbon down Street Bourbon? on LSD? Must be fucking crazy. God. Oh Jesus! I mean, yeah, it was intense. Let's say it was very intense. Um, you know what? But one of the, you know, the musical tradition in in New Orleans, be, uh, became, uh, actually became pop music. Fast Domino became pop music. But you can take Fats Domino and trace him right back three, four generations to somebody who played exactly. I mean, but it became pop. And New Orleans was the biggest recording center in the United States, and was actually bigger than and made and put out more records than Chess did or Fire or Media or any of the Chicago labels. And it was the place to record. Uh, from the 50s on. I mean, from the late 40s to until a, a district attorney came into every band, every, every strip club had a band. And the, they played behind these strippers who it was a stage and there was a bar right below them and, or, or they were on top of a bar, a bar. But there was a band there and they were the best musicians they're the guys. They were the studio musicians who recorded Matassas to make all the records that came out of New Orleans. The whole Fats Domino band. Everybody. You know, I mean, the most amazing musicians. And they they played. And they had, New Orleans could employ a lot of musicians. There's a lot of clubs and blah, 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 blah. And everybody expected to see music when you went out. And you everybody just flocked to New Orleans. And they, people realized, wait a minute. You can live here too. This is fantastic. I can get a gig. So pretty soon, the city is just thick with people actually making money playing music. And uh, Bourbon Street was flourishing. And in 1960, uh, a reform candidate ran for uh, district attorney. His name was Jim Garrison. He would be the guy who went all decided he'd figured out the Kennedy assassination and arrested this guy. I mean, the guy was a total fool. Not only a fool, but he bucked the mob. He had, well, he had a deal with the mob. He said he was going to shut down the graft and the corruption and the, all the pussy and everything that was bad 
in New Orleans if he was elected. So he was elected at midnight when he was officially whatever. They, he padlocked the clubs on Bourbon Street. Padlocked them. And big, you know, guys putting huge padlocks. And no longer will they be able to, their sin and filth. Well, it locked out all the fucking musicians until the mob said, okay, enough's enough. Okay, now we got to get start back. Well, the musicians, after they played until four in the morning at the strip clubs, always went to a place. Was a, the big place was called the Monkey Bar, and it was on uh, on Canal Street, and it's where they played till they went in there. People from all over the country, when all that were there, went to the Monkey Bar to play after hours, and that's where people got gigs. That's where they exchanged this and that. It was like the center of what went on. Well, Garrison didn't like that. Did not like it at all. He shut it down, too. And suddenly, musicians, are, there's no place to fucking play. And he shut down the business in New Orleans. Surprised he nobody shut sh it down. I'm surprised nobody shot that guy. Oh, well, <laughs> he had a deal that he was going to keep it on the down low for this long, but he went over overboard, too. And when he shut, let Bourbon Street open back up, but he shut other clubs that were musicians' livelihoods. And a lot of musicians who were not from New Orleans, but had lived there and had played there, and were incredible talents moved to L.A. Uh, Earl Palmer moved to L.A., Lee Allen. I mean, I could give you a list a mile long, but really prominent killer players said, you know what? This ain't right. And they came to L.A. to record, because there was a big recording scene here. And they didn't want to be going to... Had cold shit in L.A. And plus, there was a huge exodus of black folks from Louisiana to Los Angeles post-war, and um, like Inglewood, uh, as almost well for many many years, and still to, to some extent, black Louisianans. Uh, they all they came out to work, you know, uh, and well, they came out during the war to do the war industry stuff, blah blah blah, and then they sent for the family after that because they had jobs, so it was big. And a lot of people from Louisiana said, well, I know where I can live because I can be a... And it's true. You could just transfer your whole life and food and lifestyle right to Englewood, where you had family who still cooked the same way and blah, blah, blah. And you could get a job in the studios. And this guy, Jim Garrison, just fucked the New Orleans. Fucked it. Then, and then, of course, he becomes a hero to some real nutcases because he, he understood the assassination and he and he arrested a, a guy who was he arrested a guy who was a had nothing couldn't I, I, I can't even today it's many you know 40 50 years I, I can't even I can't hardly talk about it. It pisses me off so much <laughs> you know I mean they arrested he arrested an old queen and uh, who was the, this is a job, this is the greatest job in the world, if you think about it. This guy was the head of the International Trade Mart, which was a kind of publicity arm to get business to come to New Orleans from ships and boom, blah, blah. And he, this guy, uh, Clay Shaw was his name. He had silver white hair, very handsome, beautiful suits. And he... <laughs> Took people to dinner. I mean, that's what he did. He hustled. He, what a job. 
oh yeah, here, no but here, unlimited budget. Show these people a really nice time. I want that job. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I had I had it for a minute. <laughs> so you know what? So this this is Clay Shaw he arrested, and Clay Shaw, well, he was a pervert. No doubt about that. He he was he was a leather queen and. Um, friend of mine not I didn't see it I'm so sorry I missed it friend of mine who lived Clay Shaw lived in the quarter and but he was this respected figure around town I mean he's the head of the and nobody in New Orleans ever cared about who nobody even knew if you were a man or a woman after dark so they, nobody ever had a problem with, with him being a gay guy or anything but Garrison did and Garrison arrested him for the murder of the president of the United States, and at nighttime, and had all the news media there with big lights set up, and they took his as evidence. They took clothes racks of leather stuff out, whips, and it was like, we're gonna ruin the man in five seconds. I mean, ruin. I mean, this is vicious shit. You can arrest somebody. You have to take their. You have to go. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> he likes leather. <laughs> yeah. So I. I mean that that the Jim Garrison was not good for for New Orleans. He wasn't good for music, and he uh, anyway. I want to go back to because something yeah. we talked about at the top of the show about how people view artists as scum, and then even before we started recording, we started talking about how uh, yeah. Cadillac Ranch stuff has been stolen a lot. And recently, you posted something of I think someone stole kind of copped one of your images that you did of. Little Richard was it? And yeah, oh, that's a, yeah, yeah. So yeah, but yeah, yeah, and put it up on some kind of yeah. Was it? Uh, do you? Because I know Richard. Urban Outfitters does that a lot. Where they yeah, they yeah, steal. They, well, I would like to go. They have Urban Outfitters is really tra- really scummy. They though they have um, they have really good lawyers, and because they're ready for lawsuits, because they know that they're stealing. Yeah, they stole. I had another guest on, and she makes dolls, and they stole a bunch of her yeah. stuff for a Halloween line. And I mean, and it's just like here's she's a woman who's just like she makes them, she sells them on, online, and it's like that's her living. And it's like you're a multi. It's like you can't throw her some fucking money. No, no, they will not. If they give her money, it's such a precedent, and next thing you know, we'll have to be paying everybody we steal from. <laughs> because guess what? They, and they also treat artists, it's interesting, they treat artists, people like that, um, treat artists uh, as naive hippie types. You can steal from them because they don't really get it. I know, and I know that for a fact, because we sued a guy one time, a long, long time ago for some Cadillac Ranch stuff, and he, had, he settled, and he, he told a lawyer, he said, you know, I I, uh, uh, I never expected them to uh, have a lawyer. Aren't they just artists? They just think we're smoking yeah. dope and fuck. Exactly, <laughs> we're smoking dope, chasing pussy, you know, painting each other up, drinking wine, you know. Partly accurate. <laughs> we don't want to give away all the trade secrets here, Matt. How but, many times have... Can you count how many times somebody has copped your shit? No. That's incredible. No. Can I mean, I, you're also I, iconic, so... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but here, here's the deal with the Cadillac Ranch. Someone just sent me an album cover that someone used the Cadillac Ranch on. There's so much of that stuff goes on that it's not worth pursuing because they don't... A lot of times that people use that, it's not because they don't have, they don't have any imagination. 
They also don't have any money, and they just pull it, get their kid to pull it off the interwebs, you know. And you can't go after them at all. Uh, it's silly. The big labels that have money, they also now check pretty a lot for copyright because copyright's got to be a very big issue. So they check a lot of stuff, you know. They don't. So uh, that doesn't happen. But it used to be ka-ching when Warner Brothers did this or somebody like that. We'd get, you know, Bruce Springsteen did it. Um, you know, Springsteen did it, you know, in 19, 1980, around, the, I don't know, a record called The River. And, and the fold-out inside was Cadillac Ranch, a photo by somebody of the Cadillac Ranch, and the big song, song on the record was Cadillac Ranch. And um, they thought that... But a guy at Columbia Records, the record was going to be out. The graphics were done. The thing was printed. I mean, was not, they made posters with the Cadillac Ranch on it. The Cadillac Ranch single, the f picture sleeve. And a graphic designer that I knew, not very well, but I knew him because we all kind of knew each other, the new designers, um, uh, named Wachtell. Yes, Waddy Wachtell's brother, Jimmy Wachtell. He'd done the package and... I got a telephone call from Jimmy Wachtel saying, uh, Hudson, uh, uh, we, I, I don't remember how he put it, but he called up to tell me that he needed to get my permission to sign something. Would I come and sign something for him? I said, for what? He said, well, there's a picture of the, uh, we're using a picture of the Cadillac Ranch. That, and we're thinking maybe we should, you know, would you sign it? And I said, well, no. What happened was they were going to go to print. The record was being pressed. Hadn't been released yet. A guy, a lawyer signing off on every package and stuff, a lawyer high up at, at Columbia, CBS, went, you have clearance for this? And because he was smart. And he went, wait a minute, you have clearance for this? And I said, turns out they don't. So he says, because this is their big deal. I mean, they're releasing a fucking Bruce record at the height of Bruce Mania and Boss Mania and all this shit. They, they got Wachtell, who was in New York, and put him in a hotel room. I thought Jimmy was across town. Put him in a hotel room, told him he wasn't going to leave until he got this signed off. Because they checked, and we had a copyright. He tried to talk me into signing off. And I said, you know... Something fishy about this. I said, uh, uh, I said, well, I mean, we're going to get paid, right? Well, we don't have anything in the budget for that. You my know? favorite line they give artists. He said, he said, you know, I only had a budget of $600 for the whole package. I'm like, you lying little shit. I know you're lying for, <laughs> you know, Walter Yetnikoff or somebody, but still, you're lying. I'm like, that was it. I said, no. I called this friend of mine, uh, who's a lawyer here, Ted Steinberg, also passed on. Really great guy. He's a big sports agent, a nice guy, a good lawyer. I called Ted. I said, what do I do? Do you know who I should talk to? Ted went, CBS? I said, wait a minute. Uh, I went to school with the head of CBS Legal at Columbia. Hey, hold on. He called the guy in New York and said, hey, you know these guys? Have the guy went, oh, you're kidding me. Oh, no. Oh, this can't be. Take care. You know, so Ted said, yeah, they, they're going to do what you want. And I realized that what I had to do 
to fuck with them was not ask for 50 grand. This was an art move, and people would say it was stupid with it. I asked for $600, because that was the whole thing, $600 and 100 copies of the record, cleans. I said I wanted cleans, and you couldn't use it on uh, this, a poster, only for this, and nothing else. They were stunned, because I knew about the record business. They were stunned. They thought that they could get everything. No, use it there, and that's it. And they were like, uh, uh, uh. Then we got a lawyer who, who made them, and I made, here's what I did to them. I made them wait two weeks. Push your release date back two weeks. You know what that did to that record company and to those people and to their scheduling? Oh, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. But I had them by the balls. And because and they were going, hey, man, well, at least let us, yeah, I can give you 50 grand. At least you could we let us right now. We can release it now. Oh, $600, 100 copies of the record. And uh, I'll sign off in two weeks. In that two weeks, I had calls from all kinds of, like, Music people going, hey, Hudson, man, I know you a little from like that. I said, oh, yeah, I know who you are. Uh, you know, Bruce is a really good guy. I said, yeah, I'm sure he is. He said, he says, um, I, you know what, Bruce, Bruce is going to call you, talk to you about this. And I said, I, I don't want to talk to Bruce Springsteen. That's the biggest shocker in the world. I said, I don't want to. I said, I got enough of neurotic rock stars in my life. And besides... I'm not really a fan of the music, so it doesn't do much. Doesn't do much for me. So, no, I don't need to have Bruce call me. Well, they kept calling all these people. These rock, they were recruiting other rock stars on the label to call me, and then I realized I wasn't impressed. And I, they were also shocked that I didn't care about talking to Bruce because who doesn't want to talk to Bruce? I mean, you know. Yeah, you got time. Yeah, I, I mean, so anyway, so it was kind of an interesting endeavor, and now I wish I'd taken fifty grand too. But that 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 was an art move, you know. That has been my conversation with Hudson Marquez. Thank you very much for listening. Please uh, go to feralaudio.com conversations with Matt Dwyer page. Use the Amazon link there buy the things you need in the world because it'll help support Feral Audio and my show uh, and listen to the other shows on Feral Audio. Thank you very much and I hope you all are very well in the world today. Thank you. National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.